0: This episode contains stories about racism, including slurs, and suicide.
2: April the 1st, 1979, four am Got a silent caller to speak. He started to do the heavy breathing bit, so I gave him the usual spiel about what switchboard is all about. I was going to put the phone down, but I could hear he was still there. So I said, please speak to me. And he said, I'm gay. Spoke to him again and said it was great to be gay when he said, I've got to go now, and hung up.
1: Still to this day we get people calling switchboard um, who aren't able to say anything and the volunteer uses the methods that are described in this logbook entry and then you'll just hear, I'm gay or I think I'm a lesbian or think I'm trans, and the call ends, and you as the volunteer could have been the first person that they've ever said that to.: You're listening to the logbooks, stories from Britain's LGBTQ+ history, and conversations about being queer today.:
0: In partnership with Switchboard, the LGBT+ helpline. I'm Adam Smith.
1: I'm Tash Walker.
0: This is episode seven. It's great to be gay. So this episode we're talking about isolation and loneliness and mental health.
1: We're speaking to former volunteers, including those on night shifts, people living in different parts of the country, such as Derbyshire, London, and even the remote Scottish islands.
0: When I was a teenager, and I was going into my MSN chat rooms and Yahoo chat rooms and coming out there, or at least having chats there with other gay people. I definitely wasn't isolated from other people. I, I had really, really great friends and family around me. I think it was that thing of being isolated from that part of myself, the gay part, <laughs> which is like all of me. Um, so that was a specific kind of isolation.
1: I think I really struggled because I didn't have anyone around me who who was going through what I felt like I was going through. I think we all have felt a bit different in our lives, but DJ Ritu tells us what she did about it.
3: I think I always knew that I was different um, when, I, I, when I tried to imagine myself Being an adult, I actually saw myself as being married to a woman Um, and (laughs) I didn't really have any sort of plan to marry a guy. It was very strange. Nevertheless, I went through the usual routes of trying to normalise. I had boyfriends in my teenage years. I kept thinking if I met the right guy, then I would be somehow cured of these weird feelings that I didn't talk to anyone about, I couldn't talk to anyone about.
4: So I felt very confident in me as a person and very happy with who I was and my preference, my orientation, but I didn't know anybody like me that I could talk to and say, you know, are there more of us or is there just a couple of us on the planet? I had no idea at that stage. Hi, I'm Sally. The main issue was that I just felt very isolated I'm not quite sure how I managed it, but I managed to get a subscription to Gay Times, which in those days was an absolutely massive pink... It was literally printed onto pink newspaper. It was like the old Financial Times was, and it was massive. And I used to fold it up and hide it behind the boiler and have very long baths trying to read it. I decided to phone Switchboard when I was about 12 years old and we lived on an estate. I think there were about two phone boxes. So um, I had my tea and I went out and I got in the phone box. I made sure I had all my change ready. And the first time I called, I listened to the person's voice and I put the phone down and I felt so terrible and guilty about that. But I was too scared to continue the call a few days later, I got up the courage to make the call and I said my name. I was a bit worried that somebody might be able to track me because um, you were very paranoid in those days. But the chat was really reassuring and he told me there was nothing wrong with me and there were plenty of us, especially around London and in other countries. And although I was too young to be able to go to any clubs or events or anything like that, that, you know, just to hang on in there and things would get better. When I found Switchboard, I think the main thing I wanted to do was to talk to somebody who was like me, To know that I wasn't on my own, I wasn't from another planet and what I was feeling was perfectly normal. I wanted to feel less isolated and to know that, you know, you will grow up and you'll have more choices and opportunities and things that you can do. Uh, So basically that there was light at the end of the tunnel.
5: Here is a logbook entry. It's dated the 18th of August 1975, and the volunteer is called Paul. The entry says, Had a really good call from a woman asking where her husband can meet gay people to talk to, etc., because he's in a state and she doesn't like him being unhappy. A really nice person. Wow. That's the end of the entry. My name is Elaine and I'd like to just bring my own personal experience into this because I actually went to university at East London and studied um, counselling psychology. I worked for the National Children's Home Helpline called CareLine and then I went on to work at ChildLine and in my years of working probably listened to thousands of calls and reading that entry reminds me of all the thousands of calls I've personally taken over my career and listened to through working on helplines.
1: Helplines are so often at the forefront of supporting people, and I think that's never more true than when people were doing a night shift at Switchboard.
2: And I particularly used to like doing the night shift. I mean, during the day you might get a lot of calls about, oh, where can I go and meet people in in you know Bristol or something like that? They're sort of fairly straightforward calls, but nights are tend to be when people perhaps bear their souls more. Night is when your troubles loom large, when your worries loom large. Very lonely, isolated gay people. Obviously, many young, but also many older. Um, and and to think of someone that has gone without love and human contact, sexual contact with another person, with uh, reciprocal, um, into their thirties and forties. This this is this is very sad. I I can't say I enjoyed those long calls, um, because because they were sometimes upsetting. They were also, I mean, upsetting in the, in the sense that you would empathise with these people. There was one person who, who was wanted to know when I was going to be on the phones at night and would chat and. He had been in the war and terribly burnt, so he not only had that 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 physical disfigurement, which on the gay scene was an issue then, as you know, sadly it's still an issue these days. Um, ideas of what well, who's good looking, but it had then the experience of just trying to find find other gay people. When, when, when he was so scarred, I think he was a pilot and had been shot down. It really, really brought you up. Stop and think. My own difficulties seemed so minor compared to that. Now he also told me an interesting story. <laughs> there was just for those war years, what with all the Americans in London and also the blackout, there was a, there was a feeling of real sexual freedom going on, which sadly. Was lost after the after the war, and it's taken a long time for people to get that back. So there were some there were some positive stories, but it is not all harrowing and difficult. I was both physically because night shifts can be quite long, but also often emotionally drained after that.
6: One of the most memorable calls I had was late at night. It was uh, a guy on a fishing boat off the Outer Hebrides. I think it was about half past twelve at night. And he phoned through on, I think it was like a, they radio through and then it's like goes on to a landline call. And he desperately needed someone to speak to because he had no one. He he couldn't tell anyone that he was gay, being the skipper of a fishing boat. You know, that's like super masculine stuff and speaking to his crew, that, who they rely on and he relies on, to, for their lives. So he just needed someone to talk to. There wasn't a guy on that night, so I just sat and talked to him and he just needed someone to, to speak to, just to, to let it out. February the 4th, 1976.
2: A man phoned at 1 o'clock, talked of suicide, but this was largely a batter of the bottle. His lover left for Australia yesterday. He's going to sleep it off this afternoon and phone back tonight. No name.
0: Spitchboard has to take some of the hardest calls you can possibly imagine having to take, such as those about suicide, as Diana
6: says. We had to make a decision. Do you let that person, depending on their situation and what they've explained, do you just stay on the line and speak to them until they the call ends and obviously perhaps their life has ended or do you if you think it's a call for help make the decision of getting someone on another line to get in touch with the police because they were the only ones that could track the call and get that person help so every time someone phoned that was that had taken tablets then you had to make that decision what did you do because if they were really suffering And they were in pain constantly. And they were coming near the end of their life, and they decided that they just wanted someone to verbally hold their hand until the last moment. You had to make that decision that you were going to hold their hand and let them make that decision of their own. Or you were going to decide that it was more of a call for help and then get the police involved. So that was a balancing act of every call.
0: You get the sense from volunteers' stories and logbook entries of callers alone at home at night.
1: But sometimes there's nothing more isolating than feeling alone in a crowd of people, something that Chrissy has found in her research into trans people in the 70s.
7: So there are stories I've had. I've I've talked to some people who who, uh, describe very poignantly um, covertly buying clothes, and getting on a train and changing in the in the toilets in the train and then walk, coming from outside London for example and walking around London and then getting back on the train and changing again and then doing this for a, a period of time and then the pressure building on building up so much that they they purged is the phrase that was used or oh, still is used perhaps burnt all the all the clothes that they that they collected and all the makeup went and everything and then after a few months or a bit longer, it starts again. And you just think, and these people are saying, and and, and I really didn't know there was anybody else in the world that did this. I thought I was all by myself.
1: Yeah, that sense of loneliness, isolation, made worse historically by the fact that both homosexuality and being transgender have been classified as mental health conditions.
3: This is a logbook entry from May the 8th, 1976. A caller asked for the name of a psychiatrist got very shirty when I approached him as to why he wanted to see a psychiatrist. So he may phone back sometime with bitter complaints. Apparently he's unhappy at being gay, but was so defensive that there was little I could do.
1: So much of history is about people not understanding homosexuality and just excluding those people, whether that's because of religion, race or culture, just as DJ Rusu
3: felt. What I've worked out is that I think because I didn't feel included and I felt excluded and I didn't feel I belonged anywhere. I was an Indian kid growing up in East London In the 60s and 70s, when the National Front were marching through Ilford High Road all the time, I got called the P word, the P A K I word, every day of my life as a child, on the street, in my school, you name it. We were frightened of skinheads, and there were skinheads around us all the time. And then there was the sexuality side. Again, I didn't feel I belonged, and I I felt alone, very, very alone.
0: So calling Switchboard and speaking to a volunteer like Tony on the other end of the line must have been so important for someone who wants to feel accepted.
2: Oh, the process of taking calls. Oh, hello, this is Gay Switchboard. My name's Tony. Can I help you? And that was always, I think, the opening or something. words, Words on that line.
4: When I'd had the call, I just felt a sense of calmness in myself and excitement because instead of having to struggle with the here and now, I could start planning my future then and to think about where was I going to live, what was I going to do and how was I going to meet more people like me in the future. There are
1: so many stigmas mentioned in the logbooks and one of them is not only about mental health conditions, as they would describe it back then, but also seeking help through a counsellor. And I think that's definitely a stigma that still stands today, which people often need to reach out for, especially if they're experiencing isolation and loneliness, and it can be a really helpful path to understanding that more.
0: And the medical profession has changed like a lot over the time that Switchboard has been taking calls, and it's changed how it views these things right
1: yeah exactly it was only in 1992 when the world health organization declassified homosexuality as a mental health disorder and it wasn't until last year in 2018 that they did the same thing for being transgender
0: 2018 seems so late for that though and in the uk conversion therapy is still not illegal
1: that is one of many outstanding problems for lgbtq plus people today There are people living among us, maybe just around the corner from you, who have lived all their lives under these kinds of pressures, being medically stigmatised for being transgender or persecuted by the police for being gay. And now many of those people are isolated all over again. Now they are elderly.
0: We talked to Dr. Chrissy Hunter, whose own stories you heard earlier in this episode and in other episodes, about one issue of loneliness today. The older LGBT plus generation.
7: My name is Chrissy Hunter and uh, um, I work at Opening Doors London and the volunteer coordinator. So, Opening Doors London is a charity that, that represents people over the age of fifty from the LGBTQ communities across London. Um, and our mission, our mission statement says that we're here to help people overcome loneliness and isolation. Uh, there's an interesting generational aspects to um, being queer in various ways. When we say people over 50, of course, we ought to recognise that that's several generations. So our oldest members are in the 90s, uh, and 50 could be quite young. But a few older LGBTQ people have children and networks to to, to sustain them. And sustain them just in terms of bringing joy to their lives. Poverty, we, if you look at the statistics, um, LGBTQ populations and older LGBTQ people there's more poverty than with non-LGBTQ people but there's also fewer networks and I think it's quite particularly impactful for people who've moved to a place like London and gone out on gay scenes and have become marginalised by the age fascism of LGBT life sometimes or the gay scene falling off the LGBT scene in London falling off in terms of Pub, specifically targeted pubs and clubs for LGBTQ people. Whose experiences are, I think, in general, very different to people who are now teenagers or in their 20s. Older people have possibly or arguably got um, more difficulty with a lack of family um, connections. Many, many people in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s drifted down to London because it was an easier place to be LGBTQ than than home. Organisations that are set up to look after older people are often not welcoming to LGBTQ people sometimes in terms of negative attitudes, but sometimes just because they don't know. It's just a lack of knowledge. Which is one thing that opening doors is is trying to um, go into those organisations and and, uh, analyse what the problem is and say well you do have problems here. It's it's not okay to say we treat everyone the same Some people need to be treated differently. In HUK Camden, we have a number of people who live in Camden. Opening Doors London is part of HUK Camden. Someone did some research. And 97% of our members who live in Camden, 97% of them have never used the mainstream HUK Camden services. and only used Opening Doors London services because they don't feel comfortable to being open in non-LGBTQ environments.
0: As we've heard in this episode, Tash, so many of the stories in the logbooks are about loneliness and depression and how Switchboard volunteers handled those kinds of calls. What are we going to hear about
1: next? Next, we're going to hear about health. Calls to Switchboard are confidential, so to bring the logbooks to life, we've changed the callers' names.
0: The Logbooks is produced by Shivani Dave, Adam Smith and Tash Walker in partnership with Switchboard, the LGBT plus helpline.
1: If you think other people would like The Logbooks, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. These ratings and reviews really help others to discover the show. You can send us your feedback and stories to hello at logbooks.org.
0: Our music is by Tom Foskett-Barnes and our artwork is by Natalie Dotto.
1: Thanks to... Steph Dickers and team at the Bishopsgate Institute,
0: the folks at ACAST,
1: Gareth Mitchell at Imperial College London,
0: the staff and volunteers at Switchboard,
1: and all the contributors who shared their stories. 45 years on, Switchboard continues to take phone calls from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. every day. If you're affected by any of the issues in this podcast or need to discuss anything to do with gender identity or sexuality, you can call Switchboard, on 0300 330 0630. Email chris at switchboard.lgbt or instant message via switchboard.lgbt
5: where you can also donate money or time to help.